Welcome back to the Icelandic Roots Podcast. This is part two of our volcanic discussion with Julian Lozos. But kind of that kind of ties exactly into the, the work that I do is I go, so here's where the faults are. Um, you know, what kinds of earthquakes can happen on these faults? How big are they going to get? How different is it going to be if I start if the earthquake starts here versus here versus here? Mm. And there are other kinds of models that are um, they're not predictive. Like we can't tell when an earthquake is going to happen, but there's other kinds of models that can figure out. Okay, so if there's an earthquake here, there's more likely to be another one here, and then less likely to be another one there. Um, or you know, an earthquake here means this fault is more likely to have an earthquake sooner than that fault. Like there's a lot of different kinds of models that people can do about the interactions between faults. Um, I'm hope. I mean, there's also people who model like the physics of volcanoes. Um, I, I imagine in the coming years we're going to see more and more um, people trying to model the the interaction between tectonic earthquakes like earthquakes that are just related to plates moving and volcanic activity because that's a thing that's that's happening on the Reykjanes peninsula right now yeah so iceland could continue to be textbook in in these sorts of things but maybe more so on the modeling side and and the technology technological awareness what's also interesting is back in october like right before all of this stuff really started i was at a uh, earthquake science conference in Vancouver, and um, there was a guy from um, from Vederstoven there, and I guess he's also at Haskell Eastlands. Um, but he was talking about like these are the kinds of questions we have, and we need more models to address this. And I was like, this is something I want to work on. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, and so we talked a lot. And I was like, oh, I'll email you after the meeting. And then like immediately after the meeting, all of this stuff kicked off. So uh, Benedict, if you're listening to this, I have not forgotten to email you. I've just figured it was a bad time. <laughs> um, I will email you. Very cool. I guess maybe I'll ask too for kind of like the, the timeline context in terms of modeling and that, that technology of kind of knowing when things are happening or what might happen because of something else. Um, in terms of the 1973 eruption on the Vestmanayir, that one, I guess back then people often talk about it being a pretty big surprise and nobody really knew exactly what is coming. Um, could you maybe talk a bit of how that technology has advanced and the modeling has come since 1973 and how that kind of has changed with these new ones in the last 10 years even or so? So not only has just the state of how to study this stuff changed, like the fundamental core understanding of how the earth works is pretty different. So like the theory of plate tectonics is actually really quite new. It wasn't like codified and published until the late 60s. And so um, at the time of the Hemaya eruption in the in 73, so yeah, that was the big anniversary, we're at 50, um, it, uh, like the theory of plate tectonics was a new thing. And a lot of people working in earth science were of the sort of older paradigm and were just like, no, 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 no. So just the, since that event, um, are, are, you know, just the idea of like plate boundaries at all. <laughs> And then the idea of like Iceland is one and also there's this hotspot, like just the acceptance of that as a core way to understand what's happening there has changed hugely since the 70s. Um, But also in the 70s, I mean, computer modeling wasn't really a thing. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Right. There's uh, there's been a lot a lot of technological advancements for sure. Like even just thinking about like I 
started grad school in earth science in earthquake science in 2008 and just thinking about the kinds of simulations i can run now like the size and the level of detail and the number of things i can include versus the stuff that i could run then even just in 15 years it's improved hugely um so like some of the sort of the earliest simulations of earthquakes were like you have one or two faults and they're just you're treating them as a line in 2D and they're it would take a while to run those. And now we can run things where like you have hundreds of kilometers of multiple faults of weird shapes interacting with each other and bringing in all kinds of conditions from data and um those can I mean depending on what you're running them on, I mean they can take hours to days, but like some of the stuff I'm like, I recently had to rerun some of the kinds of things I was doing in grad school that took um, like eight hours each at the time. They take 25 minutes each on my computers that I have now. So just the, the science is advancing enormously. The capacity is advancing enormously. And kind of, I think the, you know, the question is like coming back to some of these things like, oh, we, we couldn't do a simulation of that 15 years ago. Let's try again. Um, but I know of very few, like, I mean, there are a lot of different ways to study earthquakes and volcanoes. Um, but just thinking of the kind of thing I do, we call forward models going, you know, here's a system, what could happen there? I, there's not a lot of that there for Iceland. Um, and what I have seen is for the North. Um, like, so I saw like one of the other presentations at that conference I went to in Vancouver was about the Husavikflate fault system. Um, and, and when I, you know, was talking to the folks there, it's like, I want, I want, I'm interested in the South. Um, let's talk. And again, that's that email that I am still going to send. <laughs> um, I know there's been huge advances also just in terms of instrumentation. Like there's more seismometers out there, just more sensors out there to record things. Also, now we can study deformation of the ground from space. Um, so have you like in the seen any of those images of, of like sort of psychedelic looking colorful fringes sort of? Yeah, those rainbow the- graphs usually always come across when there's lots of earthquakes. I don't quite exactly know what's going on with them, but I see them on Facebook and What's Up Iceland and all those communities often. So what those are, um, so those are called an interferogram. And basically what happens with those is there's a satellite like orbiting the Earth's satellite that will take pictures of the ground. And um, the idea is that um, it's sending a, a wave down and it measures the distance between itself and the ground by the number of wavelengths there are. And so, um, if the ground is changing shape, whether it's moving sideways or going up or down, um, as the satellite passes over it multiple times, the number of wavelengths between the ground and the satellite will be different. Um, and so, if, and then what happens is they'll literally like subtract one of those images from the other. And the raw data of doing that is what gives you one of those psychedelic looking fringe plots, but there's a way they can process it to make it just be like more red is more up and more blue is more down. Um, Yeah, those are literally subtracting two images taken from space. Very cool. Yeah. And obviously that's going to be new technology here in the last couple of years as well, right? So the first time... Um, I mean, that actually goes back further than you'd think, but still not that far. Um, the first time that was done for an earthquake was the 1992 uh, Landers earthquake, which was a 7.3 earthquake in Southern California. And it's since become a, like there's people whose entire life's work is based on using that to study things. Um, 
And then also we can use GPS, like the exact same stuff that's in your phone um, is rather than tracking like you moving in your car. Um, the idea is there's a sensor on the ground and they still track that with the same satellites. So really our understanding of being able to literally see stuff moving from space is new and exciting um, and a great just like like there was recently a thing that was published just showing exactly how fast the different parts of Iceland were moving. And I showed that to a, a friend who's also really um, just a big Iceland appreciator. And they were like, didn't we know this? And I'm like, I mean, we, we knew this, but now we can yeah, see it. Yeah. Hard data. Like you can directly see it. You, you can probably be the, the best expert I could ask this on, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm heading back to Iceland in July with my girlfriend. And uh, I need confirmation from somebody that I can book a ticket at the Blue Lagoon and it's still going to be there. <laughs> I, I, that, that, I, I can't confirm that. <laughs> Actually, what was, no. uh, <laughs> so, uh, what, was, what was funny is in the, like in October and November before all the activity shifted into Grindavik, um, and it looked like the eruption might be in the Blue Lagoon. Um, there were a lot of memes. Oh, there were there. I saw a lot of people like multiple drawings or, or AI generated pictures of like lava monster in the Blue Lagoon, or like there was someone who's was like guests must be careful not to feed the lava monster uh there are a lot of jokes there are a lot of people like uh you know this eruption sponsored by sky lagoon uh, just a lot of, there were a lot of volcanoes in the blue lagoon jokes um i, it, it, I even like I, I recently like leading up to this asked sort of how do you feel about living in a geologically active area and some people were there were a few people who were like part of me hoped the blue lagoon would get surrounded in lava um I think a lot of people are are uh, kind of like this is a I mean, they're like this this is for the tourists and not for us and, and I think that I mean I've been there a couple times on the tourist yeah um, but there were definitely some jokes about it I mean it's one of those like we can't say for sure honestly like the I mean if you've been there before it's built in lava it's in pretty like the lava that the surrounds the blue lagoon is from the most re, like the the last episode of of Reckoness fires um, like 800 Absolutely. years ago and it looks like you're in just a, a volcanic wasteland when you look around of the I entire mean, blue lagoon like you really do feel like you're in the middle is. of nowhere yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's like, it's like, actually, I thought about that. A thing I, I need to look up is just on the recent maps, like a, that was just showing the lava extent from the, the eruptions in the last few years. It has some of the the names of the older lava fields, and the one that that the Blue Lagoon is is in Idlhron, like evil lava. Like, why is that one the evil lava? Am I reading this wrong? I need to know why that one in particular is the evil lava. <laughs> That was the one that was coming coming for the the warm waters and nice skin softening stuff we love. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, that that oh, was yeah, totally not. Oh yeah, What the hell? <laughs> yeah, like why is that one of all the potential lavas the the evil lava? Like, <laughs> yeah, well, if it uh, if it all goes well and the blue lagoon is still there, I think it'll probably just pick up interest. You know based on all the publicity happening right now. And it's similar to the Eyjafekja Jokul uh, eruption that brought so much global attention to Iceland in many ways, so long as massive infrastructure does not get destroyed and there isn't extreme damage. Iceland always seems to benefit 
on the other side of these things, bringing so much interest and intention. I don't know if you guys have seen on Netflix, but uh, Pardon My Icelandic by Ar- Ari Erdjan. Oh, I saw like an excerpt of that. And it's, it's very good, Pardon My Icelandic. And it's just based about everything Icelandic. And it was, it was, and it was when it had gone off in 2011 or whatever it was. And uh, <laughs> he, he said, base, he, was, he goes off in, into it and he's like, oh, Iceland thought the entire world hated us because one local British news channel had this drunken Scottish guy come in the back. And he I said, I saw that video. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, damn you, Iceland. You guys ruined my flight and my Christmas plans. You're the worst. And then he said, and Iceland figured everybody hated him from one drunken Scotsman. <laughs> so it was interesting. I was like traveling within the U.S. when that happened and just the place I was staying, like, I mean, it really did mess up everybody's flights. Like there are all of the Europeans that were staying at this, the hostel I was staying in were like, uh, what do we do now? Like it was, it was a pretty big deal. Um, but what was interesting is like, so that, that wasn't even a particularly big eruption. Just the thing hmm. with Afiakuyoka was that it, um, I mean, it was a more like the chemistry made it a little more explosive, but then also because there's the glacier on top of it, um, as the first explosion happened, all the meltwater got in there and it just like sent all this ash and the way that the, the wind was blowing just like bullseyed Europe. Um, but one of the things like with this, when, when the activity like back in November, um, I uh, actually was asked, to, like I, I actually went on some American news about this. Like they were like, so is this going to mess up people's Thanksgiving and or Christmas travel? Um and uh, what was also funny is they kept calling it the 2010 Iceland volcano because they, uh, I guess they'd seen all of those clips of people trying to say if you have to look at on the news and like, <laughs> they didn't even want to go there. Um, but like one of the big questions they had was, is this going to mess up worldwide travel? And um, mm. the volcanoes on, on Reykjanes will not um, because mm. they are not under glaciers and they're also just different lava chemistry. So um, that shouldn't be a thing. That's positive yeah. for the frequent flyers. <laughs> yeah, positive and still gets them a lot of publicity. And I oh, think yeah. someone mentioned the uh, yeah the Eyjafjallajökull Yoko uh, eruption and just how a country couldn't have like paid for that much news coverage for <laughs> their country as they got from that eruption, and it still happens today, right? So much, and you probably get this too, Owen. Anyone involved with Icelandic stuff, all the time with this recent eruption, everyone's just always asking everyone's me. Everyone's dialed on it, yeah. On everyone's mind, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. I uh, the entire office this week, everybody's like, "Oh, do you have pictures? Do you know anybody who was around it?" It's like, oh, I'll see if I can dig something up, guys, but I can't promise <laughs> you anything. <laughs> but where else can you get? that close to yes. an eruption, right? Like, I Absolutely. mean, the whole, like, word is even like, it's a word that like people use. Um, but I mean, I mean, I know I certainly went there several times and gave them tourist dollars. Uh, I also remember seeing like this, some, some articles, and I think it was in the Reykjavik grapevine about like statistics for like Iceland air passengers and how it was definitely like went up with, the volcano and down with the um although also in that same question where i asked people like what do you think and some people are like i'm really worried about like eventually a tourist is gonna die a horrible death 
Yeah. That's, you know, and I feel like that's actually a common thing I hear from Icelanders. I noticed it a lot when mm-hmm. I was there. It's that they there's no, like, disregard or disrespect towards tourists or anything like that, but they are mm-hmm. very aware that there are some tourists that just are going in with a not a head screwed on, on completely onto their shoulders, right? And they're mm-hmm. walking across lava that's probably this thick on the hard top and they're going to go sinking in if they go through more steps, right? Like it, it does happen. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, all of the times I've been to the eruption sites of, well, I guess not with Meredaler because it was obviously just like spewing right there. But with the others, <laughs> yeah. like, don't do that. Don't, don't. Do yeah. There's yeah. a couple of suspicious moves. There are people doing stupid things. I think it's kind mm-hmm. of amazing that no one has been seriously injured yet. Yeah. But it's yeah. one of those like it's a volcano, it's lava, it's twelve hundred <laughs> degrees Celsius. It's dangerous. Yeah, but you're not going time, for a swim in the Atlantic Ocean. You're going into lava. <laughs> but like this kind of volcano, that said, is like the least dangerous kind of volcano because it's not exploding. It's there's just lava flows. So like if you are a sane and reasonable person following the safety advisories, like. It's an amazing thing that you can see this so close to the airport, so close to the capital. But like it might also be like people who are being careless and are unaware of like, no, really, it's that hot. Like if you fall in, it's too late. Like you won't melt like in movies, but uh, the heat will get you. Um, Yeah. 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 They put the signs out for a reason, right? (laughs) Uh I did want to just. A re-highlight. I always appreciate someone bringing up the fact of plate tectonics and how recent, like that absolutely blew my mind again from our friend, Eric Schoonover, when we were in Iceland with him. And uh, he told us just how recent of an accepted theory plate tectonics is. Of course, and you probably know the joke as well, you know, geologists looking at a map and thinking like, oh, it looks like South America could really fit into Africa and all these different continents look like they could fit together. Sure enough, you know, that sort of is how it went. But then different things always surprise me too. Like we were mentioning India, maybe before we were recording, uh, or maybe in the podcast. And what blows my mind is not uh, with regards to Madagascar. And sorry, if this is a bit of a tangent, we can was, wrap I love, up after this. But uh, I, I, I teach a whole class on plate tectonics. So I love talking okay, about that. Okay. Uh, something that I always found so interesting is how Madagascar was last attached to India. And I thought, oh, that's interesting that Madagascar came down so far. But no, what's fascinating is that India went way up and then crashed into, I guess, Eurasia and then made the Himalayas and and that sort of thing. But looking at these sorts of- And they're still getting bigger. Yeah, okay. Also, an yeah. interesting thing you mentioned that, you know, just, yeah, the, the like puzzle piece Africa, South America thing. So this is a- uh, so you know that map of that ma- old map of Iceland that has all the like really good sea monsters around it. So the guy who made that map was one of the first people to point out that um, Africa and South America look like they fit together and that like someone should look into that. And no one looked no into way. it for a couple hundred years. But yeah, the same guy who's, whose oh. name I'm now forgetting, I think it's Andreas something. Yeah, we can look that up. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Was one of the, like who made that delightful map with all the sea monsters was one yes. of the first people to point that out. Wow. That's so interesting. Thank you for that. That's yeah. uh, so Iceland may have a deeper contribution to uh, these, these ideas. I than, think he's than... not, I, he's, he's not Icelandic. He just made, 
the map. Is it, is it Will, Willem Blau? Uh, name tab. I'm, I'm looking this this up. There is a name um, for that map too. No, not not just Iceland map. I want Icelandia map. Yeah, the map is from the 1580s. Ab- wow. Abraham Ortelius. Yes. Yes. I think I must. Oh, have and then a Gusbrander Thorlaxen, a bishop in Holar. Oh, engraved. In yeah. So this apparently he's one of the first people um, to uh, kind of say, "Hey, these things look like they probably used to be attached." Yeah. So interesting. And also that there's probably a bunch of sea monsters around Iceland. I think he was on to something there. I think somebody's going to come and prove prove that part right too. Yeah, I don't know if that. I don't know if the science has settled with that yet. You know, who knows what's lurking in those waters? Exactly. Exactly. I, mean, I think All we're right, going to learn biologists from that one. Uh, yes, that will be the next episode. Exactly. That'll be the sea monster special, guys. All right. Perfect. Well, Julian, thank you so much once again. I hope you and your family have a very Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Lydia, yeah. Thank you. Hope and, to get this and, out. And, and yeah, life. to all our Icelandic friends, Gleidele Yol. <laughs> it hasn't felt like an hour. I just love talking about this, and thank you for, for having me. Very good to get an actual geologist who can tell us some of the math and science behind this, as opposed to us just kind of watching the pictures and videos. So, yeah, thank you very much for uh, making time in the busy Christmas schedule right before. It's been much appreciated by us. Thank you all once again for listening to the podcast. Now, before we fully wrap up, I thought I would read something from a David Attenborough book called Living Planet, The Web of Life on Earth. And the opening pages are talking about the furnaces of the earth. And in reference to Iceland, volcanic activity, plate tectonics, all of these sorts of dynamics which we discussed in the podcast. So... I will read from this book as we wind down this podcast episode. The titanic forces that built the Himalayas, as we uh, just talked about there at the end of this podcast, and all the other mountains on Earth proceed so slowly that they are normally invisible to our eyes. So we're talking geological time. But occasionally they burst into the most dramatic displays of force that the world can show. The earth begins to shake, the land explode. If the lava that erupts from the ground is basalt, black and heavy, then the area may have been continuously active for many centuries. Iceland is just such a place. Almost every year there is volcanic activity of some kind. Molten rock spills out from huge cracks that run right across the island. Often it is an ugly tide of hot basalt boulders that advances over the land in a creeping, unstoppable flood. It creaks as the rocks cool and crack. It rattles as lumps tumble from its front edge. Sometimes the basalt is more liquid. Then a fountain of fire, orange-red at the sides, piercing yellow at its center, may spout 50 meters into the air with sustained roar like a gigantic jet engine. 
Molten basalt splashes around the vent. Lava froth is thrown high above the main plume where the howling wind catches it, cools it, and blows it away to coat distant rocks with layers of gray, prickly grit. If you approach upwind, much of the heat as well as the ash is blown away from you so that you can stand within 50 meters of the vent without scorching your face. Though when the wind veers, ash will begin to fall around you, and large, red-hot lumps land within a thud and a sizzle in the snow nearby. You must then either keep a sharp eye out for flying boulders or run for it. Flows of cooling black lava stretch all around the vent. Walking over the corded, blistered surface, you can see in the cracks that, only a few inches beneath, it is still red-hot. Here and there, gas within the lava has formed an immense bubble, the roof of which is so thin that it can easily collapse beneath your boot with a splintering crash. If, as well as such alarms, you find yourself fighting for breath because of unseen, unsmelt, poisonous gas, you will be wise to go no further. But you may now be close enough to see the most awesome sight of all, a lava river. The liquid rock surges up from the vent with such force that it forms a trembling dome. From there it gushes in a torrent, 20 meters across maybe, and streams down the slope at an astonishing speed, sometimes as much as 100 kilometers an hour. As night falls, this extraordinary scarlet river illuminates everything around it, a bayful red. Its incandescent surface spurts bubbles of gas, and the air above it trembles with heat. Within a few hundred yards of its source, the edges of the flow have cooled sufficiently to solidify. So now the Scarlet River runs between the banks of black rock. Farther down still, the surface of the flow begins to skin over. But beneath this solid rock, the lava surges on and will continue to do so for several miles more. For not only does balsatic lava remain liquid at comparatively low temperatures, but the walls and ceilings of solid rock that now surround it act as insulators, keeping in the heat. When, after days or weeks, the supply of lava from the vent stops, the river continues to flow downwards until the tunnel is drained, leaving behind it a great winding cavern. These lava tubes, as they are called, may be as high as 10 meters and run for several kilometers up the core of a lava flow. In a striking example of how similar processes proceed or produce similar effects, lava tubes are found on the moon, even, and on Mars. Now back to Iceland a little bit. Iceland is one of a chain of volcanic islands that runs down the center of the Atlantic Ocean. Northwards lies Jan Mayen. Mayen. I never know how to pronounce it. I've often read it. J-A-N-M-A-Y-E-N. Jan Mayen. To the south, the Azores. Ascension, St. Helena, and Tristan da Cunha. Cunha. The chain is more continuous than most maps show. For other volcanoes are erupting, but below 
the surface of the sea. All of them lie on one great ridge of volcanic rocks that runs roughly midway between Europe and Africa to the east and the Americas to the west. So right between Europe and Africa, right between the Americas, runs the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, as we discussed in the podcast. Samples taken from the ocean floor on either side of the ridge show that beneath the layers of ooze, the rock is basalt, like that erupting from the volcanoes. Basalt can be dated by chemical analysis, and we now know that the farther away from the mid-ocean ridge a sample is taken, the older it is. The ridge, volcanoes, in fact, are creating the ocean floor, which is slowly growing away from them on either side of the ridge. So it does seem like that same process that we discussed with Iceland expanding um, happens on the ocean floor too. So another example of maybe how Iceland can be used to understand um, volcanic geological formations. And let's finish up here with some of this David Attenborough for the end of our um, volcano podcast. The mechanisms that produce this movement lies deep within the earth, 200 kilometers down. 200 kilometers, wow. The rocks are so hot that they are plastic. Below them, the metallic core of the earth is hotter still, and this causes slow churning currents in the layers above which rise up along the line of the ridge and then flow out on either side, dragging the basaltic, basaltic ocean floor with them, like solid skin on a custard. Such moving segments of the Earth's crust are known as plates, and most of these plates carry on them like lumps of scum, continents. 120 million years ago. Africa and South America were joined together, as you might guess from the jigsaw similarity of their coastlines, and as is demonstrated by the likeness of the rocks on opposite sides of the ocean. Then about 60 million years ago, a current welling up beneath the supercontinent created a line of volcanoes, a fracture developed along the supercontinent, and the two have slowly moved apart. The line of the split is today marked by the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Africa and South America are still moving away from one another, and the Atlantic is getting wider by several centimeters each year. Another similar ridge extending from California southwards was responsible for creating the floor of the eastern Pacific. A third running from Arabia southeast towards the South Pole produced the Indian Ocean. It was the plate on the eastern side of this ridge that dragged India away from the flank of Africa and carried it towards Asia, crashing into it to create the Himalayas as we mentioned. Okay, and I think that wraps up the discussion of Iceland here. Um, uh, there are some videos that you can watch on YouTube of David Attenborough talking about the volcanoes in Iceland as well, him being such a well-traveled naturalist. And anyways, this segment was being read from Living Planet, The Web of Life on Earth by David Attenborough, and I thought I would read that just to provide some more um, descriptive uh, context about these uh, uh, geological dynamics that we've been discussing in this podcast. So once again, thank you all for listening, listening, 
And uh, until next time, take care out there. Goodbye. <laughs>